This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Hello, and to start off, I would like to thank you all for being here tonight. We will be talking about gratefulness or thankfulness and what that means. My dad and I will be speaking on this topic, and my study will come from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Tonight I have four points I would like to study on this topic. First, what does everything mean? Second, what does being thankful look like? Third, how do we tell God we are thankful? And four, choosing to look at the bright side regardless of your situation. I'd like to ask what is the meaning intended by in everything give thanks? Well, you probably already know everything is the good things in life and the bad things in life. So for an example, if you get a raise at your job or your stock investment skyrocketed, those are some good things that could happen to you. But what about the bad things? It's a lot harder to give thanks when something bad happens, like you lose your job or a loved one dies. Yet we are told to give thanks in both. Sometimes it's the bad things in life that help us grow, and, and we can be thankful for that opportunity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, For our light affliction, is but, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The bad things are not always as bad as we think because when we look at the bigger picture, they are small in comparison in a, they are small in comparison to an eternity spent with God. Now on to my second point: What does being thankful look like? Well, in Psalms chapter thirty-three, verses one through four, rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with harp. Make melody to Him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Shout of joy, for the word of the Lord is right, and all his works is done in truth. So being thankful means singing. Like when you are happy in the morning, you might you might find yourself singing or humming, which is why we sing in church because we are praising God and letting Him know that we are thankful. In Ephesians chapter five, verse verses nineteen through twenty. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This verse backs up Psalms 33 a little bit by saying that, to, that saying singing to the Lord is like giving thanks in all things. Singing is a mark of joy and a way to both create and encourage joy. Let's in a way to both create and encourage joy. Let's move on to my third point. How do we tell God we are thankful? Another big part of being thankful is, being, is, be, is praying or being prayerful. In Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 17, Now it happened as he entered to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voice and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourself to the priests. And so it was that, as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet, 
giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? I think what Jesus was pointing out here, is what he saw, what he said when he said this, is the lack of thankfulness he saw. Let me give you an example we can all relate to. A little known fact about me is that I consider myself a cookie connoisseur. When I make a cookie, it's a labor of love in which I concoct the perfect mixture of flour, eggs, sugar, butter, baking soda, and most of all, chocolate. I prefer to make my cookies in my dad's coffee mugs. If you've been to my house and my dad has made you a cup of coffee, you'll be familiar with what he calls kitty cups and man cups. A man cup is what other people refer to as a bowl with a handle. This cup is the size of four normal coffee cups and was never meant to be drank from was never meant to be drank from. We bought it for him as a joke at Christmas, never expecting him to fill it with about a gallon of coffee to drink a day. I like to make my cookies in the man cup. So when you get a cookie from me, you're getting something special. If I labored over that cookie, making it the way only I can, and you took that five pound Michelin star man cup cookie, and you ran away, eagerly scooping out that delectable goodie to treat your palate, and you didn't even bother to say thank you between bites, I'd probably be a little bit upset. When Jesus healed the ten lepers, he sent them to the priests. Only one of them actually thought to try and thank him. Jesus, like in my example, was taken aback at this, so much so that he asked where the other nine lepers were, and why they weren't also thanking him for healing them from a deadly disease. You see, taking the time to express our thanks is a measure of how thankful we actually are. But how do we tell God we are thankful? It's not like you can go to him in person and thank him, but you can always go to him in prayer. And that is just as important as any other thing you can do. Let's look at our text verse a little more in depth. This time, let's start reading in 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter, chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This verse directly says to happily pray without stopping in order to give thanks in whatever situation you are in, good or bad. And that takes me to my final point, choosing to look at the bright side. Turn with me, if you will, to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25. Heaviness in the heart of man maketh it stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. When you think of being thankful, do you think of a person slouching over and being negative, or do you think of a person who is happy and genuinely just happy to be alive? What I think this verse is saying is a person that is thankful decides to be positive because they dwell on and consider their blessings, even when something bad happens, because they still look at the silver lining. Joy sometimes starts with a choice to act happy and thankful, and that act later develops into a feeling later. In conclusion today, we have looked at four points. First, what does everything mean? Second, what does being thankful look like? Third, how do we tell God we are thankful? And four, choosing to look at the bright side regardless of your situation. As we tie these, these points together, I want to say that being thankful isn't something that just happens on its own. You have to choose to act thankful and make an effort. Let's all make the effort to be thankful in all things regardless of where we are in life because we want to be like the one out of ten lepers who came back to joyfully thank the Lord for what he did for us. I will now be turning it over to my dad for the second half.
Well, I'm glad I have a tough act to follow. Thank you, Ethan. Uh, Gavin was supposed to be speaking tonight, and uh, he got sick. So um, I'm filling in for him, and I'm getting the benefit of his topic, which he prepared. So um, there's a couple of things I want to reference that he was going to say, and, uh, but the rest, you know, I try to, you know, not plagiarize him too much here. Um, we're going to continue the thoughts on gratefulness that Ethan started and the text for this part of the study is Romans 8 and 28, if you want to turn there. It says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. I have three points tonight that I'll be speaking on. They are, what is meant by all things in this verse? How can all things work together for good? And lastly, who is this promise made to? So, point number one, what's meant by all things? Now, when we ask this question, it's easy to point to all the good things that God is behind. You have the temporal blessings such as homes, cars, clothing, food, health, vacations, the income to make a life off of. But what do you think about God when the bad things happen? Do we believe that God has these things in hand as well? Um, or do we believe that they're out of His control? Perhaps we even blame God for these things. To properly understand what all things in Romans 8.28 means, we have to first take the time to, I think, internalize and meditate upon a simple fact that I think is oftentimes overlooked, and that is that nothing is out of bounds for God because He is God. And what is God? We know there's nothing that He cannot do. There's nothing that He doesn't have the right and the authority to do. Moreover, we're in no position to question him. That's a tough pill to swallow, and we sometimes do question God, don't we? At least the world certainly does. You know, a common argument the world makes against God is he's either weaker than he says he is because evil things do happen, and he can't control that, or he's less good than he says he is, because he allows evil things to happen or because he says he's a jealous God. You may have heard those things. But this argument only serves to demonstrate that there's a fundamental lack of understanding of just what it means to be called God. When there is an omnipotent God, it means there aren't two sides, one of which are the good things that God has in hand and then um, the other that he doesn't have influence over. The truth is he influences and controls all things. Uh, he manages to fill them, or he manages them all to fulfill his purpose. Even if something bad happens, as hard as it may be to see it sometimes in that moment, God is still in control. He is on his throne, and he's executing his plan. Now, that's how it looks on paper. But how does it look in practice? Is God in control when there's war? War is made up of death, hardships, evil. Is God behind that? Do we believe that he can turn all that bad into something good? Is God in control when a, a plane crashes? You know, you have hundreds of people on this giant plane. It's flying over a city, let's say, and there's a malfunction. That plane crashes and you have massive loss of property and life. Can God really take that tragedy and work it into something good? Is God in control when sickness takes a child away from a parent? One of the things Gavin was going to mention is that when one of our own, Rhett, was diagnosed with cancer, it was very easy to ask, 
how such a sweet, innocent child could be allowed to face such a thing. Brixley, who was mentioned in our prayer, just 16 months old, stumbles into a fire pit and her life may be altered forever. Is God in control of that? Can he really work those things to good? More importantly, do we believe that he can? The answer, though oftentimes hard to swallow in the moment, is that these things are horrible, they're awful, they're regrettable, but they are all accounted for in a plan that is verily, verily good. Paul's telling us that even the bad things are going to be manipulated, as it were, by God to achieve a glorious end. And we can take comfort in that. We can be grateful for that. But to be grateful in the midst of suffering, you have to have trust, don't you? And that takes me to my second point. Just how can all these things work together for good? This is part of a much deeper theological question, and we're just going to scratch the surface tonight, but... I think it'll give you some food for thought. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 <clears throat> says, He, speaking of God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Let's think about some things that start out ugly and turn beautiful with time. You have a caterpillar, they're pretty ugly but they turn into a beautiful butterfly. You have a, maybe a flip house. It starts out dirty, ugly, an absolute disaster oftentimes, but through the work of someone who cares, it can be made into a piece of art where you can double or triple its value. Parents, Gavin wanted to include this one. You know that teenage boys smell like flowers, are naturally tidy, and never speak anything but kind words of wisdom, right? Well, Gavin's answer to that question was, and I'm quoting him, No, we teenage boys are nasty. We make a wet dog smell good sometimes. When we finally clean our room after the millionth time you've asked us to, you know you can click your heels three times like Dorothy, and our rooms will be a disaster again. And despite our tough-looking exteriors, we are actually pretty emotional as teens, and so when we speak, we can easily offend and then refuse to take it back sometimes, which is not exactly wise or kind. But we know that God uses those tough teenage years to forge memories and strong young men, and then he was going to flex and say, look at me. <laughs> and isn't that true? In all seriousness, God can and does turn all things toward his purpose, and that's beautiful. But he does it in his time and in his way, and those are not things that we're meant to fully understand. Isaiah 55 verse 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, in our view of time, things may be hard, they may be easy, but regardless of the circumstance, God has plans for us, and all things that happen, they happen for a reason. And yet, someone asks, why though? Why? Why does God do that? To answer that question, let's turn to Romans 11, verse 36. This is a pivotal verse to this part of the study. It says, For everyone, everything comes from Him and exists by His power, and listen to this, and is intended for His glory. Everything 
is intended for His glory. And then Paul says, all glory to Him forever. And then it's followed up by an amen. We have to acknowledge that it's for His glory. We have to agree with that and we have to promote that. There's a saying that goes, the night is always darkest just before dawn. God allows evil things to happen even though He isn't the cause of them. And sometimes they are dark indeed. He does this because when He overcomes the darkest things, things that seem impossible to us, it brings Him greater glory. The answer for why God allows evil things to happen in just a moment in time is really as simple as this. It is all for His glory. Did you know it isn't for me or for you? All these things that happen in this life since the fall, it's not for you or me. It isn't for our prosperity or blessing. It's for His glory. Now, God does want, He does love us. He wants to bless us. We know that. But what He gets out of it is not, it's not about us. It's His glory. Glory that says He overcame the cunning of the devil. He overcame sin. He overcame death. He overcame a people that didn't love Him. He paid a price Himself that no one else could pay. He did the impossible. And in so doing, He brings great glory to His name. The truth is that God started with a perfect plan and a perfect place and a perfect creation, and it all proclaimed His glory. That's why He said He looked on it all step by step and said it is very good because it glorified Him. God never stopped loving His creation, but you know something. This is incredible to me. He's wise enough to know that Satan's efforts were never about the creation. That includes us. What it's about is Satan coveting the glory that belongs to God alone. And that is what the battle is really for. And therefore, God fights it a little differently than we might expect. In our mortal coils, we sometimes mix things up. We think it's about the creation, don't we? And if it's about the creation, then it does indeed seem capricious of God to allow us to suffer and come to harm, if it's just about us. But it's not. Remember what Romans 11.36 says, Everything comes from Him and exists by His power and is intended for His glory. Everything. All glory to Him forever. Amen. Friends, it isn't about us. It's about God and His glory as the one true and living God. Now imagine that we are in a fire, a conflagration, terrible heat, the type of thing that uh, you might imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into. And God's going to snatch us out of there. He's going to save us. God doesn't put the fire out first. Instead, He thrusts His hand right into the middle of the fire, intending to show and remind us and Satan who He is. He is God, and nothing can stand against Him, nothing can harm Him, Nothing can stop him. Now, he doesn't brag about what he did after having dodged the bullet, so to speak. He takes the bullet on the cross in our lives, surrounded by the plague of sin and bad things that Satan has caused. 
And in so doing, he shows that he's more powerful than that flame. He's more powerful than any bullet. He's more powerful than sin, more powerful than death, and more powerful than Satan. He shows who is God. Not by preventing evil, but in triumphing over it. Remember, God doesn't create evil, but he permits it and he does it for his glory. That is how all things work together for good, because it's God doing the work for the purpose of his glory. If we can understand that, life will begin to make much more sense. And then the third point that we have tonight is to whom is the promise of Romans 8.28 made? Remember the verse says, to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Some translations of the Bible don't put the word the in front of called, and I think that that is a, that is a mistake because it is the called that this promise is made to. Who are the called? This promise that God works all things together for good, it is for those who are his people, those who love him, those who have been redeemed. They are those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and bearing his fruit. When the world looks at this verse and says, I don't see how God's working these things together for good. This and that happened to me and my life is terrible still. Well, that's because you're not the called. You're not the redeemed. This is a promise specifically to and for only God's people. The Bible shows God honoring promises he makes to his people as well. I just want to wrap this up by pointing a couple of these, uh, these verses out. Because if he honors these promises, he's going to honor this one. He always honors his promises. It's impossible for God to lie. You know, perhaps one of the most inspiring of God's promises was the story of Abraham and Isaac. We're not going to read that one, but we know that Abraham believed God's promise that a future people was going to come from Isaac no matter what happened. He knew God would honor that, and so he was willing to obey. And just as Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, we know that God stopped him because he was honoring that promise. Listen to some other promises God has made to his people. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I've called you by name, you are mine. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up and the flames will not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as a ransom for your freedom. I gave Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Others were given in exchange for you. I traded their lives for yours because you're precious to me. You are honored and I love you. Don't be afraid for I'm with you. I will gather you and your children from east and west. I'll say to the north and the south, bring my sons and daughters back to Israel from the distant corners of the earth. Bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. That's quite the promise God's made there. You know, I read that and I was like, you could sum that up as, in God I am invincible. He has made me so through Christ. 
Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12 says, God blesses those who, who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it, Jesus says. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. The idea here is that we just need to be grateful for what we have, and that includes circumstances or events that may feel bad in the moment. Maybe we're poor in spirit, but in the end, we have the kingdom of heaven to look forward to. Maybe we lose a friend or a loved one, and we mourn so much for that loss. But know that someday we'll be comforted by Jesus himself. Maybe we're the long-suffering, meek person who feels like they're giving everything up to someone else, but we're going to inherit the whole earth, we're told. The truth is that those who hunger for the word shall be filled with great joy in spite of tribulation. God will bring a good end using the pieces of a broken and shattered life to those who love and obey him. And I'll ask you tonight, who, who do you serve? Do you serve the one who wins in the end and provides everlasting comfort to those who patiently wait on him? Or do you serve the one who offers momentary peace at the cost of eternity? You know, the promise of Romans 8.28 is to God's people, if we will but wait upon the Lord. The very real pain that we experience in this life sometimes, it is indeed terrible. I don't mean to downplay that. You know, even Jesus wept when Lazarus died, and that's a fascinating story. I think Jason touched on it in his last lesson. You have to, if, have, you never, have you ever thought, stopped and thought about why does Jesus weep when he knows he's about to raise the man from the dead? Well, the answer is simple. He did so because he understands just how wrong the world is in its fallen state. Death is not a good thing. It's not a natural thing. It creates grief such that even the Lord sees it and its effect on us and he weeps with us. So no one is saying, don't be impacted by the bad things in your life. You certainly will and should. That's why we're told, blessed are they that mourn, for they should be comforted. He doesn't expect us to take these things on the chin without flinching. But understand that the pains and troubles in this life, they're, they're but, but a moment. And we can know in the midst of the worst that this life has to offer that this too shall pass. And for the people of God, eternal good awaits us when all these things up to and including death are swallowed up in the good and glorious victory of Christ according to the plan of God. That's how God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So in conclusion, 
We've looked at what Paul meant by God working all things for good. We answered the question of how all things can work together for good, and we've defined who this verse makes the promise to, which is God's people. As we think on these things, remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As we leave today, I hope that when something hard does come up, uh, you know, I hope that we can think of it as us being given an opportunity to grow stronger and give glory to God. Remember, it's not about us. It's not about us getting out of that trouble. It's about being grateful for an opportunity to participate in bringing God great glory. He is worthy. I hope that we can rejoice in all things, the good and the bad, and be grateful that we can truly be thankful. Uh, this concludes my study for the night. You know, we don't have a whole lot of time. We don't know if uh, Christ is coming in two seconds, two minutes, two years, but we know He is coming. So if you are here and you are ready to respond to the gospel, submit to the waters of baptism, or if you need the prayers of the church, Take advantage of this opportunity tonight as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.